0: Chapter 4 of The Last Egyptian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Last Egyptian by L. Frank Bull. Chapter 4 The Treasure of Aht Kara went to the cavity beside the arch and took from it a small bronze lamp. It was partly filled with oil, on the surface of which a cotton wick floated. The lamp itself was of quaint design, and the young man remembered it since the days of his childhood, but had rarely seen it in use. Having lighted the wick and spread it with his fingers until it flamed up brightly, Kara turned back to the arch and carefully examined the rear wall of the room. The house, as has been explained, was built against a shallow cave of the mountains, but owing to the irregularity of the hollow, part of the rear wall was of solid masonry, while the other part was formed by the cliff itself. Kara had never before paid much attention to that fact, but now it struck him as very evident that the masonry had been constructed to shut off an orifice too deep or too irregular to be utilized as part of the dwelling otherwise the continuation of the cliff would have rendered a wall unnecessary the stones were of large size and were built up and cemented as far as the overhanging rock that formed the greater portion of the roof the egyptian's eyes rested upon the third layer of these stones and he counted from the corner to the seventh stone in appearance this was not different from the others but her directions had been exact and she knew "'He walked to the spot and pressed hard against the right edge of the stone. "'It moved and gradually swung inward, "'the left edge being supported by solid pivots of bronze at the top and bottom. "'The opening disclosed was about four feet long by three feet in height, "'and Kara at once crept through it, holding his lamp extended before him. "'Yes, his surmise had been correct.' "'A low but deep and irregular cavern was behind the wall. "'His first care was to close up the entrance "'by pressing the block of stone back to its former position. "'There was a bronze handle on the inner side "'that would permit him to open it again easily. "'The cavern felt damp and cool, "'and when he raised his lamp he saw some deep fissures "'leading far under the mountain. "'He selected the second from the left, of these rifts and cautiously made his way along the rough floor at first it seemed that he had made a mistake for this way was less promising than several of the others but when he stopped and thought upon hatatcha's directions he knew that he was right the rift made a sudden turn and sank downward but the rocks under his feet were now more even and the way became easier to traverse a hundred paces farther The passage ended abruptly in a sharp point where the rock had originally split. The young Egyptian walked to the extreme end and then carefully measured three paces back again. Raising his lamp, he examined the right wall of the tunnel closely. It contained many irregular cracks and hollows, but one indentation seemed, on observation, to be surrounded by a tiny circle of black, or a colour darker than the other portions of the rock kara uttered an ejaculation of pleasure he had feared he might not find this spot in spite of his grandmother's assurances that it was plain to keen eyes drawing a short pointed dagger from the folds of his burnous, a weapon he had found in the crypt beside the arch of the living room the egyptian thrust it into the orifice of the rock and pushed until it had sunk in to the very hilt Then he turned the handle, and a sharp click was audible. Kara stepped back a pace, and a part of the rock, circular in shape, swung slowly out into the passage, revealing another tunnel running at right angles with the first. Unlike the other, this was no natural fissure of the rock, but an excavation cleverly made by the hands of man. The roof was arched, and the floor level and smooth. The man slipped through the opening and proceeded along the arched passage. He did not close this door behind him, for Hatacha had warned him not to do so. The floor had a gradual slope, and he knew that he was going still farther beneath the mountain at every step. The atmosphere now became hot and stifling, and he found it difficult to breathe, but he continued steadily walking for a matter of five minutes, which seemed an hour, holding the lamp before him, until finally he noticed the blaze of the wick flicker, as if a breath of fresher air had reached it. By this time his breast had seemed ready to burst, and his breathing was fitful and gasping, but he hurried forward, and now found the air cooler and fresher, and drew it into his lungs gratefully. The path was no longer downward, and before him he presently discovered a huge pillar of rock, which at first sight seemed to block the tunnel. Rude hieroglyphics were graven upon it. Passing around this at the left, he found himself in a high-vaulted chamber, and stopped with a sigh of satisfaction. The chamber was circular in shape, and not more than sixteen feet in diameter. An air-shaft in the dome evidently led to some part of the summit of the mountain, for Kara found himself breathing naturally again. "'This,' said he, "'must be the library that Hatacha mentioned. "'All around the walls of the vault were niches "'cut in regular rows and containing box-like receptacles "'covered with inscriptions and pictures in gaudy colours. "'In the centre of the room stood a large round slab of granite, "'finely polished upon its upper surface. "'Kara drew a box from its niche "'and set it upon the granite slab beside his lamp. "'Then he took from it a roll of papyrus, which he examined with interest. Yes, he had read it before. It was one of those so often mysteriously produced by his grandmother to assist in his education. He examined another roll, and a third, leisurely and with care. These also he knew well. There were 218 rolls of papyrus in this ancient library, and the knowledge they contained had all been absorbed by the young Egyptian years before. He read them easily, and knew at once from their context the different meanings of many signs that are yet puzzling less favoured students of their hieroglyphics. The manuscripts dated from the fourth Dynasty down to the days of the Ptolemies, and in a large cavity below the rolls of papyrus were ranged the earlier works of Herodotus, Diodorus Siculus, Manitho, Horapolo, Strabo, and others, as well as the volumes on modern Egypt and European history that old Hatacha had purchased in Cairo within the last few years. Several historical stelae of the earlier kings of Egypt also leaned against the walls, arranged in chronological order, and this library, founded by Atkarar, which had been preserved and added to for so many centuries, was a veritable storehouse of the records of his remarkable country. Kara smiled queerly as he glanced around the room. Others argue concerning ancient Egypt, he muttered, but I alone know the truth. A pile of papyrus rolls in another cavity seemed of less importance than those so carefully arranged in boxes. Kara brought an armful of them to the central slab, dusted them with his rope, and selected fifteen of their number after a cursory glance at their contents the others he restored to their place this being accomplished he took up his lamp and returned to the passage this time circling the pillar of rock to the right it led to an immense oblong chamber so vast that the light of kara's bronze lamp seemed to penetrate the blackness but a few feet in advance but other lamps were suspended from huge bronze brackets and several of these the Egyptian proceeded to light, finding them nearly all supplied with oil. Then, stepping backward, he gazed about him with an irrepressible sensation of awe. The huge chamber was filled with mummy cases arranged upon solid slabs of aswan granite. Nearest to the entrance were a dozen or so slabs that were unoccupied. Then appeared a splendid case of solid ebony, elaborately carved upon every inch of its surfaces. This had been made for Hatacha in London during her residence in that city, and secretly transported to this place by devices only known to her. The inscriptions were all in the sign language, except the one word, Hatacha, which appeared in Roman letters upon the cover. It was empty, of course, and Kara proceeded to the next slab. Upon it lay the mummy of his great-grandmother, Tyaten, the one so naturally embalmed by the dwarf Sebit, her limbs were bandaged separately, and the contour of her face might be clearly seen through the thin and tightly drawn linen that covered it. Kara sighed and made a profound obeisance to the mummy before proceeding up the chamber as he advanced. the mummies increased in age and also in the magnificence of their cases and the importance of their inscriptions. Some of the slabs were covered thickly, with hieroglyphics relating to the life history of their occupants, while on them were crowded curious Ushabtu figures, amulets, and scarabs. Finally, Kara reached the end of the chamber and paused beside the mummy of the great at who, while not king in name, had nevertheless ruled Egypt during his lifetime through the weak Ramses II, whom men ignorantly call the Great. Long the Egyptian knelt before the remains of his great ancestor. Rameses himself, and Seti his father, and many other kings of Egypt were lying in the museum at Cairo to be impudently stared at by crowds of curious modern tourists. But this famous one had wisely provided for his own seclusion and that of his posterity. It was ad who had constructed this hidden tomb during his lifetime, and he kept the secret so well that no painted or graven record of it existed to guide a meddling foreign race to its discovery in the years that were to come. Kara's eyes fairly gloated upon the mummy-case of his wonderful ancestor. It was studded thick with precious stones, any of which might be deemed a fortune to one whom, like himself, had existed so long in a lowly condition. But he did not disturb these gems. Instead, he touched a spring in the slab, a portion of which slid forward and revealed an opening. Kara took his lamp and crept into the aperture. There were seventeen steps leading downward. Then came a short passage, and he entered another large chamber hewn from the solid rock. Here was the treasure-house of abqal its contents doubtless primarily rifled from the treasure-cities of Pithom and Ramses which after his death were found to have been despoiled the entire room was faced with polished granite and around the walls were granite tables to hold the treasure as well as immense wide-mouthed vases of perfiri, malachite lapis lazuli carnelian and bronze upon the tables were heaps of chains bracelets ornaments and utensils of pure gold in the centre of the room stood twelve alabaster pedestals two rows of six each and each pedestal supported a splendid vase containing gems of various sorts on the floor were numerous other vases and receptacles for jewels and golden ornaments and one of these kra noticed was yet more than half filled with the precious coins of darius hystaspes some of which his grandmother had used to provide herself with necessities because they were of a comparatively modern date, and would arouse no suspicion that the source of their supply was the ancient tomb of Atka-Ra. Indeed, it was easy to be seen that many of Atka-Ra's successors had added to this treasure-house instead of pilfering from it. The original store, contained in the twelve great Malachite vases, was practically untouched, although Hatachem must have drawn upon it at one time. All the treasure littering the tables and floor had been added since Ad Kharah had lain in his tomb. Kara's face was unmoved, but his eyes glistened brightly. He thrust his hand into a jar and drew it out filled with rubies. They were of all sizes and shades of colouring and were polished in flat surfaces instead of being cut into rose facets according to modern methods. Some of the stones had small characters graven upon them, but usually they were smoothly polished. The Egyptian now turned to the wall tables. Here were also rubies, diamonds, amethysts, and emeralds, set in golden ornaments of many designs. Some of the stones were so great a size as to be extremely valuable. A casket of dark wood inlaid with silver hieroglyphics attracted Kara's attention. He threw back the lid and took from it a massive chain of gold, which he threw over his head. Each link was finely engraved with characters relating the name of some king and a deed he had accomplished. Kara read some of the inscriptions and was amazed. The chain had originally been made in twelve links by, by Anita, the twelfth king dating from Menes, during whose reign the Nile flowed honey for eleven days. His successor, Uwajnes, took the chain and added another link so that the chain had grown through several succeeding ages down to the time of akara no wonder it was long and heavy kara did not like to replace this marvellous chain he dropped its links inside his burnus and left it hanging around his neck after an hour or more devoted to the inspection of these treasures which the young man naturally regarded as his own Forgetting that Hatacha had warned him, he but held them in trust. Kara reluctantly prepared to leave the chamber. First, however, he selected twenty-three great diamonds from a jar, and concealed them in the folds of his turban. The turban is called the Egyptian's pocket, because a burner seldom has pockets, and many things can be secreted in the voluminous cloth of a turban. "'Here is one diamond for every year I have lived,' said Kara. "'Surely I am entitled to that many.' "'But it did not satisfy him. "'He thrust his hand into the jar of rubies again "'and took out all that his fingers could clutch. "'He loved the colour of the rubies. "'They appealed to him. "'Then he crept up the stairs, re-entered the mummy chamber, "'and closed the secret slide in the malachite slab "'upon which lay the mighty Atka Ra.' who not initiated would ever suspect the enormous wealth lying so close at hand kara sighed deeply and held himself proudly erect he was just beginning to realize his own importance extinguishing the lights of the lamps he had kindled in this chamber he retraced his steps to the library where he gathered up the fifteen rolls of papyrus carrying them in the front breadth of his burnus while he held fast to the hem. In this way he returned along the arched passage until he came to the rock door, which he had left ajar. He climbed through the opening and thrust the rock back into place, listening, while the heavy bolt fastened itself with a sharp click. He was now in the natural fissure of the mountain cavern, and it did not take him long to reach the stone wall which alone separated him from her dwelling. He paused a moment with his ear to the wall. "'but hearing no sound, he extinguished his light "'and then caught the handle embedded in the stone "'and swung the block upon its pivots. "'In a moment he was in the living-room, "'and the wall through which he had passed "'seemed solid and immovable. "'He must have been absent for several hours "'during his exploring expedition into the mountain, "'and the night was far advanced. "'Kara flung the papyri into a corner, covered them with loose rushes from his grandmother's couch, and then threw himself upon his own bed to sleep. He had been awake for the better part of two nights, and the eyelids were as heavy as if weighted with lead. End of chapter 4